we can audit after the fact, and we do that. But if the money's already wasted or been diverted in an appropriate way, you know, then you end up with a prosecution and what we're going through now. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Doulis from the CBC. CBC is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank and budget watchdog concerned with cost-effective governance in New York City and New York State. Find us online at cbcny.org and at cbcny. I'm at Maria Doulis. And Gotham Gazette, for those who don't know, is published by a Citizens Union Foundation to be a watchdog news publication looking at city and state politics and government. Uh, I'm on Twitter at TweetBenMax, and we're at Gotham Gazette. And we are here for What's the Data Point, Episode 3. If you've missed our first two episodes, please check those out. We broke down the city budget, and then we also discussed CBC's recent uh, survey of New Yorkers about their satisfaction with city government and city services. And so for Episode 3, we have a special guest here today, New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli. Welcome. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Maria. Thanks for coming. And so let's jump right into today's data point, Maria. The data point for episode three is $780 million. That is the value of the contracts involved in the alleged bid rigging and corruption cases brought against nine people involved in some of Governor Cuomo's signature economic development programs like the Buffalo Billion. So to zoom out uh, a bit here... The governor is a big believer in direct economic development spending by the state to jumpstart the economy, particularly in areas upstate that have been lagging for some time. So fresh off the presses from my state colleagues, the state is now spending $9.5 billion annually in economic development statewide, $5 billion of that in tax breaks and direct spending from the state. So the contracts at the center of these indictments include Cuomo-conceived initiatives like the Solar City Factory that was part of the Buffalo Billion. Um, And at the center of the scandal in many ways was a nonprofit entity that was part of the State University of New York that was managing and brokering many of these deals upstate. So you ask, what is SUNY doing managing economic development projects? And that is part of what we're here to unpack with the controller. Thanks, Maria. So our data point here is 780 million, controller DiNapoli, uh, lots of scandal, lots of controversy. You, Your voice has been at the center here talking about reform. Give us a snapshot of sort of what's going on here. Yeah, Ben, as Maria laid out, a lot of money is being spent with a worthy purpose. We have many regions of the state that are still behind in terms of job recreation after the impact of the Great Recession. Some regions of the state that weren't doing that well even before the Great Recession hit. So I don't think anybody disputes the need for us to do more to spur uh, job growth and economic development. Uh, However, uh, billions of dollars are are being put to that purpose, some through existing programs, some through new initiatives. Part of what's happened with this funding is that some of the traditional oversight through the controller's office that had been in place has been reduced uh, or eliminated, particularly with regard to SUNY construction contracts. And SUNY has been used as a vehicle for uh, spending, uh, obviously, a great deal of this money. And also centralized contracts that are now being let through Uh, the Office of General Services. So actually, even beyond economic development, since 2012, when uh, about the time when this all took effect, it's about $25 billion worth of state contracts that had previously been reviewed by the Comptroller's Office that at this point are not being reviewed. And as as 
Maria mentioned in the setup, uh, in, in the case of some of the economic development money, we now have some very serious allegations involving bid rigging and favoritism and people, some within the administration, some associated with the administration, donors, developers, getting favors, uh, obviously benefiting financially themselves. And what I've argued for is let's restore the oversight that was taken away from our office. And let's also take some other steps. Give us uh, more authority to uh, look at the operations of the research foundations through SUNY. Let's stop using these nonprofit entities through SUNY to funnel money. That that really is a, a most opaque process where there really is no transparency or accountability. And it's those entities that have really been at the center of these, of these charges. Maybe years ago, some of these entities were set up to lease land for education purposes, but uh, the, the ways in which the, they've been used for economic development purposes really uh, evades the kind of accountability that should be there. So we have a specific proposal. It was introduced in both houses. It seemed to have a fair amount of support, but um, at least as of our conversation, uh, it hasn't happened yet in terms of being enacted by the legislature. And so we should note that we're talking as the legislature's yeah. in a special session, right. maybe wrapping up today, um, maybe not as Thursday, uh, June 29th. In the regular session and in the budget deal reached in April, this did not move forward. Right. Why do you think that is? Well, um, you know, in fairness, it did it did get reported out of a committee in the Senate. Uh, there uh, are a fair number of uh, rank and file legislators who indicated their support for it. Certainly, uh, from the perspective of editorial boards and advocacy groups that weigh in on these issues, there was a tremendous amount of interest and support. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the uh, the governor's office had concerns, put it diplomatically. Uh, and obviously, towards the end of session, when many decisions are being made at a leadership level, uh, this was one of those items that fell off the table. Uh, and as far as I've heard, with them going back uh, before July 4th, this is not one of the items that has gone back on the table. That doesn't mean it's still not uh, an important proposal uh, for, for, for uh, the legislature to consider. We're going to continue to push for it. I don't think the issue is going to go away. If anything, when the trials start, there may be a, 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 um, a reignited interest in saying, how can we prevent something like this from happening? And I want to make clear that, that there's no guarantee that giving us more oversight means there'll never be any problem. But having more eyes independently looking at uh, the procurement process, looking at contracts before there's an approval, before payments are made. It certainly enhances the likelihood of something is amiss. We may find it. It certainly enhances the likelihood that people will feel there's a level playing field. People won't be discouraged from bidding or competing for, for these programs. Uh, if there's a, a, a protest, someone will have a place to go uh, to protest. And uh, I just think if you have more eyes and ears, there's a deterrent effect there. If more people are listening to any concerns, more people are looking at what's happening. And our office is set up to do that kind of review. It's a deterrent. People will think twice before trying to get away with something. So to me, procurement reform, clean contracting as a call, it's an issue we must deal with. So you, you referenced the trials. I, I've talked to this, written about this. The people uh, charged by the U.S. Attorney's Office in this bid rigging scandal, they're due to go on trial in October. There might be some delays, you never know, but that's the scheduled date for the trial is, is starting in October. And as you said, there will certainly be increased attention on what happened here and how it happened. When you filed your New York State Procurement Integrity Act, the first line of the justification I'm looking at here says the recent criminal charges filed by the U.S. Attorney and, and the Attorney General um, bid rigging. That means that 
when hundreds of millions of dollars in state contracts were put out for bid by companies. You know, I don't want us to get lost too much mm -hmm. in sort of insider conversation here. Hundreds of millions of dollars put out for, for bidding by the state and those uh, requests for proposals to outside companies were designed in a way, the allegations are designed in a way, allegedly, to favor certain contractors. And would your, you said you wouldn't necessarily be able to kept, catch everything, but in these instances of what you've seen, does it look like things that would have raised red flags to your office? So, some of them might have, particularly with regard to construction, uh, and not always were construction contracts. But you know, I, I think the fact that it, it was basically a non-competitive process, uh, right from the get-go, there's there's a real opportunity for compromise and corruption, and and the, the lack of that competitiveness means because we see this all the time when we go through normal state agency procurements. There's a protest if somebody you know feels there's an unfair advantage that somebody's getting. But in, in this case, because there was a sense it was a closed process, there wasn't even an opportunity for anybody to protest. So yeah, I think I, if we had more uh, oversight and authority, uh, I'd like to think that some of the folks that thought they could get away with something they they, they wouldn't have even tried it. Uh, and and the fact that they've used these these nonprofits uh, to 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 funnel the payments, it it really. So is is out of the normal state agency review that we're a part of, and, and and that's why I think you know sometimes people focus on the contract review that was taken away from us. That's an important part of the, our re, reform proposal to put it back, but it's not using those entities anymore. So that it could go through a more normal process, which again would would provide more transparency and accountability. So look, as I said, can I guarantee that if we had all this, uh, nothing would have happened? No, of course not. But I think much less of a likelihood that someone thought they could get away with something. You know, one of the, um, and we should note your bill is more comprehensive than just these things, and that, in fact, the ESDC has now taken over some of the functions that these SUNY nonprofit entities were managing, which is a step in the right direction. But your bill, unfortunately, like uh, a few others floated this session that would bring some transparency and accountability to economic development, did not move forward. And one of the arguments that we've heard sort of as a critique of the bill is that, well, you know, we want to be nimble. This is imperative. We want to move forward quickly. And this would make the process long and drawn out. So how do you respond to that? I mean, how long does it take your office to look over some of these yeah. contracts and perform a review? Yeah. Oh, Maria, I'm glad you asked that question because you're exactly right. In the interest of efficiency, you know, let's, let's, let's take the controllers office out of the process. You know, on a, by law, in reviewing contracts, we have 90 days by statute. On average, when you look over the past few years, it's less than two weeks. In fact, in our we put out a monthly report on, on contract approvals. I think for the month of May, it was it was an average of ten days. So, you know, obviously, if it's a larger, more complex contract, it might take a little longer. But the reality is, we're set up to review contracts, and and you're really talking about a matter of days, maybe a, ma a matter of weeks uh, on average. And our folks understand that that we want the government process to move forward. So, I really think it was it was a red herring. It was it was not a valid argument to say that our review would slow down the process. I would argue just the opposite. If the process has enhanced credibility because of our independent review, and independent is, is, is an important word. There were other proposals to try to deal with this, creating inspector generals appointed by the governor's office, you know, uh, a, a procurement officer, again, appointed. So 
again, it's it's that closed nature where there's no independent review that I think causes the the, the climate and the atmosphere for there to be corruption. And the controls office is set up to be independent. It's a separate elective office. The people who do this work are, are not political people. They're civil service people who are trained to do contract review. Uh, so no, I, I think I don't think it sacrifices efficiency. And you know what? If it takes a day or two more, if you're if in the long run you're going to have a more competitive open process, that's going to protect the taxpayer interest if you have that kind of a process. It's worth the extra day or two. So. Um... We've sort of alluded to this, and the key, obviously, sort of elephant in the room is Governor Cuomo, his economic development programs. He didn't like your um, proposal. He had his own proposal, which he said last Thursday was a substantive reform on procurement, uh, said he didn't think the controllers, uh, you know, call for doing, he said pre-audits is, is the way to go, that if you're not going to catch it in a post-audit, you wouldn't catch it in a pre-audit. That's what he said. Um, so... The governor clearly wants to move things as he wants to move it. He wants to have control over his economic development programs. He doesn't want to restore this oversight. How do you convince legislators to move something like this, where they clearly did show some interest, yep. but then it vanished? How, yep. What do you do yep. on that front? Well, because it's a challenge. Um, as happens in Albany, there are many issues on the table. And while I think this was important to legislators from a, a reform and a good government perspective, uh, there were other needs that took precedence. Um, a big issue like mayoral control on schools in the city kind of wiped everything off the table for a period of time. And then legislators have their own more local needs that they're concerned about. So in the, you know, in the kind of trading and back and forth, you know, an issue like this that's of a broader value, but not necessarily of a local constituency value, uh, no surprise it gets put to the to the to the bottom of the list. You know, I mean, look, in the beginning, the governor was saying that uh, it's not about audits. Well, unfortunately, he came to distinguish between, you know, audits after the fact and pre-ordered or reviewing a contract ahead of time. Well, in fact, just the opposite. When you review a contract ahead of time, you can ensure as best you can that there's nothing amiss, that there's good taxpayer value involved, that it was a fair process. So in fact, you can stop some bad things from happening. So to, we can audit after the fact, and we do that. But if the money's already wasted or been diverted in an appropriate way, you know, then you end up with a prosecution and what we're going through now. So, so I, I just don't think it's a valid argument to say that 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 contract review uh, responsibility doesn't make any sense. In fact, you saw you know the governor hired guideposts to do a review of the procurement process with regard to the Buffalo Billion and identified the process being a very sloppy one. So clearly, there's a need for us to do improvement, and I think the key thing is independence. You need to have somebody, some entity taking a look that isn't answering to the entities that are making the decisions on where the money goes. That's how you assure that there's accountability. And, and that's why the controls office is set up. In this era, taxpayer dollars are, are limited. We want to make sure we're getting a good return on these investments. Accountability, transparency, that's what the controls office is all about. So enhancing our role is the way to solve this issue. We're going to just stick with this for another minute, and then Maria is going to ask you some some things about other matters. But um, you have Senate Majority Leader Flanagan, Assembly Speaker Hasty, IDC Leader Klein, and then also other legislators, of course. Um, Senator DeFrancisco appeared a little more gung-ho about this procurement reform um, than others who are sort of at the top echelon in the legislature. Tell us a little bit more. Are you calling those leaders and saying, guys, 
you can't let the governor sort of make you back down on this? Or what are the conversations like? What's happening there? Are your aides doing it? You know, how does no, that I'll work? I'll I mean, certainly I've had an opportunity during the session to, to speak to the uh, uh, the leaders and, and indicate the importance of this proposal. And at a staff level, we've had many uh, meetings with the sponsors, Crystal People Stokes in the assembly, and, and as you point out, John Francisco in the Senate. Uh, we've had some amendments to the bill as a result of some of those conversations. But, um, you know, again, I think it'd be fair to say at a, at a leadership level, uh, I think the leaders were interested in having a three-way agreement that that wasn't happening. And so, you know, uh, it was not brought up for a vote in either house. I feel if it was brought up for a vote, it would it would pass in both houses. Uh, so look, I've been around for a while. There are a lot of good ideas that take uh, more than one session to get uh, enacted into law. And I don't think the, the pressure or the interest in having this proposal uh, be adopted is gonna let up. If anything, you know, I think it'll just increase. So I'm, I'm gonna be the optimist and say, we'll get it at some point in some version. And we're open to continued dialogue with the leaders. If there are more amendments that they think are appropriate, then let's talk about it. And is, was there any message that you got from those leaders to say, we just can't get this done? You know, was it what? Was no, there a... we never got a definitive. Mm -hmm. We never got a definitive. No, but that's probably not unusual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's well, always yeah. a, there's always another day when you're talking about the legislative process right, in, in right, New York. Right. Right. Well, you know, CBC supports the bill. Yes. We think it's part of a range of things that need to happen in economic development to restore, as you said, integrity and independence and confidence in the process on the front end, but also then on the back end to have the metrics and evaluation and accountability systems in place to make sure that this money is, is actually well spent. And as you said, generating the return on investment for the city's dollar, the state's dollar. And we appreciate that support. We're spending billions of dollars, and there are many communities that are still behind the curve in terms of job creation. It's not unreasonable now that we're in overall a better climate in our state to step back and say whether it's an old program or a new program, are we getting a return on this investment? Could the money be spent in a smarter or a better way? Right. At the end of the day, I mean, what we're talking about here is massive amounts of taxpayer dollars being used whatever we're talking about on this podcast, really, right? right? Is taxpayer right. dollars yep. being used and how that return on investment or how it affects people's lives. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, we get into complicated processes here around contracts, but that's the bottom line. Yep. That's right. And that's an excellent way to pivot to our next question, which is about the budget. Yeah. So your office recently released a report on the state budget that shows, you know, concerning declines in the personal income tax. The personal income tax, we should say, is about a third of the state's revenue source. So how do you interpret those declines? Are you worried? You know, does it signal something greater? Um, do you think the state is well positioned to be able to handle a, uh, an economic downturn or continued declines in these revenue sources? Probably better position than we have been for, for a period of years, but but I am concerned. You know, we're, our fiscal year starts April 1st, so we're still early into the fiscal year. And June is a big month because you have the quarterly estimated tax payments. So I think getting the June numbers in will probably be more reflective of whether or not there really is a trend. But you're right, we're, our revenues are off by about a billion, largely because of, of uh, personal income tax revenues being short of projections. So, you know, I, I think I'll reserve judgment until we see the June numbers to see if we really think it's a trend. But I think we got two, two major risks. One is what you identify, Maria, that's the economy showing some signs of softness. We see that in sales tax collections also coming in you know, there's still ahead of, uh, there's still growth, but it's, the growth keeps slowing, you know, every year that we track it, whether that's the economy slowing down or impact of internet sales, or the underground economy, it's hard to 
gauge all of that. The stock market, we depend on Wall Street, uh, not exclusively, but very important to our city and our state's economy and, and revenues that come to the city and the state. You know, this, this strong period of time, how much longer is it going to last? So we got to be concerned about the economy. The other big risk, though, is what's happening in Washington. What will happen with decisions on the Affordable Care Act, health care dollars, Medicaid? What will happen with the other budget cuts uh, that are being proposed and other human services programs? Uh, we, we could lose over a billion dollars there. We could lose six billion, uh, give or take, you know, over the next few years on on the, the more extreme versions of, of replacing uh, so-called Obamacare. Of course, we could end up with 2 million New Yorkers not having health care coverage that they have today. What will that mean in terms of increased costs when they show up without coverage using the emergency room in a hospital as their doctor's office? And usually that means it costs more money and we end up paying for it anyway. So so the, the risks from Washington are as significant, if not more significant, than the concerns about the economy right now. And there is a provision in the budget if we lose $850 million or more in federal aid, uh, there's the opportunity for there to be a, a, an alternate plan to reduce spending, uh, which could mean less money to our local governments, including New York City. So I think we need to look carefully at what's happening in Washington as much as we look at the economic trends. Just a quick follow-up on that, if I can. That provision that passed in the budget, that's another power to the governor, division yeah. of budget. Yeah. Any concerns about that? If there yeah, are well, these big slashes? The first uh, provision really was pretty much a unilateral uh, power it was changed and modified to at least there there be a threshold. And the way it's been set up now, there's the opportunity for the legislature to substitute an alternative plan if what's proposed by the division of the budget controlled by the governor, uh, if if they feel they have a better approach. You know, the problem there is that if the legislature can't agree on an alternative plan, and they sometimes can't agree on things, as we know, then by default, uh, the plan from division of budget will take uh, will take hold. So it is an improvement over what was first Put forth, so I'm happy about that, uh, and I do think it's good. There's some kind of uh, recognition uh, that because we didn't know the numbers, we weren't able to, you know, it, it, there wasn't any other way to deal with it. Same thing with the city budget. There, everybody's concerned about the cuts, but there's no, there's no reserve set up, you know, for that specifically. Well, the city has built done a better job building up reserves in the state, so. I think the provision, Ben, that ended up was better than what was first proposed. Let's put, let's leave it at that. <laughs> so just to um, sort of wrap up with you, Controller Napoli, can you just tell us now, as you said, you're looking for some more um, numbers coming out, budget numbers here in at the end of June. We're going to the summer. Uh, things quiet down a bit in Albany. On procurement reform or anything else, sort of what's next for you? What are you focused on other than the sort of day-to-day -day operations of your office? Of which, you know, there's a lot. You know, we're, we'll come up to... Uh, evaluating with our pension fund what will be the impact on rates that, that local governments and taxpayers uh, have to pay. So that's something we, we do over the summer. We certainly have uh, a robust series of audits. We're carefully looking at what's happening with the MTA. We've had a lot of reports and audits on the MTA. CBC has obviously done a lot of work in this area as well. Everybody's talking about it. So uh, you know, clearly some of what we've said in the past hasn't been listened to. Maybe now people pay a little more attention to that issue of long-term planning. How are we going to finance the capital plan? You know, Are, are we using the right management techniques when it comes to managing our infrastructure. So I, I, I think that's going to be an area where we're certainly going to be doing a little more work as well. Okay. And procurement reform will still be on the agenda or you're sort of backing off? Well, on that as you point out, if they're not in session, uh, there's really not much for us to do uh, other than continue the dialogue, you know, at a staff and a member level. But uh, assuming nothing gets done before the July 4th, uh, it's probably an issue that we'll have to take up next year. For What's the Data Point, we appreciate Comptroller Tom DiNapoli joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Bria. Thanks, Ben. And 
we are not done with this episode of What's the Data Point. After a quick break, we're going to be joined for another portion of the episode with CBC's Director of State Studies, David Friedfeld, who will be talking about the legislative year in sum, uh, the $153.1 billion state budget, and whether the governor really kept under his 2% spending increase cap. So stay tuned. So we're back on What's the Data Point here with CBC's Director of State Studies, Dave Friedfeld, and we're talking a bit about the Albany legislative year, including the budget that was passed in April. And welcome, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. So Dave, give us a recap of where we ended up with the budget um, and what the major trends and and accomplishments were this year. Okay. Um, So uh, the budget was about nine days late, which is an aberration for the Cuomo administration thus far. and another aberration, which is something that we had covered, um, relates to the growth in state operating spending. So state operating spending is essentially a catch-all measure for the state's budget choices. Um, it doesn't include federal money, and it doesn't include capital spending. Um, we think it's actually a pre- generally a pretty good measure of, uh, of state spending. And the governor has vowed to keep state operating spending below 2% growth. However, this year, um, in kind of digging through the details and seeing where some money got moved around, um, either from one year to another, or from state operating spending to a different type of spending, um, we actually would measure state operating growth at the 3.7%, um, a, a, a marked increase from prior years. Um, and, and given the, the way the financial picture is going, as you, as you just discussed with the comptroller, um, is, is a cause for concern for us. So it's 3.7%. What is underlying this discrepancy? Because the governor's office is reporting that they've held to this 2% cap, right? So where, where do we find a difference? Um, so there's kind of two main types of differences. One is moving money from year to year. And the, the governor has done this, and prior governors have done it as well, um, where they prepay their debt service. Um, now, prepaying something sounds like a great idea, you know, but it's, it's really like if you, your credit card bill is due on uh, April 2nd and you pay it on March 31st, you're still paying the same amount of interest, the same amount of fees, whatever it is. Um, you're not really saving any money. You're just paying it in March instead of April. And that's kind of that's kind of what they're doing there. Um, so that's one of the, the main things. And the other thing that they're doing is reclassifying spending. So one of the things they did was move um, individuals, personnel from state operating spending to capital spending. These are folks who work on on capital spending, capital projects. Um, and I guess there's some, some people who've been within the capital funds for a while, and this is treating everybody the same. And in and of itself, that's not necessarily a big deal. The issue is that it's moving that money from one type of spending to another, and that are, they're not adjusting for it when they calculate that 2%. So they're basically saying we're saving money by paying somebody out of a different pocket. And in the end, it's it's all coming out of the taxpayers' dollars, and it should be counted the same, and that's largely how we get to the, the 3.7%. So 3.7%, not extraordinarily high, certainly higher than prior years. And we're saying that in prior years, yes, the governor and the state have been able to keep the state operating spending to the 2%. So, you know, what does this suggest that the state is under some pressure? How have they been able to to keep within this 2% cap? And what are uh, the items that are growing in the budget very quickly that are leading to this upward pressure in spending now? Uh, a lot of the, the things they've done in the past um, really did kind of result in, in real savings and savings to the taxpayers. The uh, the major areas of growth would be school spending um, for state aid and then also uh, spending on Medicaid. 
Um, the state has a little bit less control on Medicaid. They've done a lot to, to curtail spending. Spending on Medicaid is actually the, the growth rate has gone down in recent years, um, something that we've applauded and, and are digging further into. Um, on the education side, the opposite has happened. Um, state spending um, has increased considerably in recent years and is, is large, is vastly um, in excess of 2%, which then creates pressure on all the other areas of the budget. Um, this past year, state spending grew uh, about 4.2% on education aid, and we have a, a series of, um, of criticisms of, of how they did that and where they put that money, which hopefully we can touch on uh, if we have time. Um, so that's kind of the, the main areas of growth um, and, and where the, the state's been increasing. So education and Medicaid, those two big slices take up how much of the state budget, you'd say? Um, they take up about two-thirds of the state budget. Uh, and so as those have been growing at sort of a greater rate, the, the other part of state operations have had to grow more slowly, right? And as a result, state agency spending has been pretty flat, and we've seen a decline in the level of state personnel over time um, to accommodate the growth. So let's let's hit a little bit on education, as you said. Um, state spends greatest amount, you know, a tremendous amount of money per pupil yeah, on education. Spends, the state spends the most per pupil uh, in the nation of any state, eighty-five um, percent more than the average state. Um, and while you know education spending certainly sounds like you know that that's a good thing, um, we're not getting the results. Is, is part of the issue. We're about middle of the pack for results. Um, and one of the largest portion, about two thirds of state aid, goes into a formula called the foundation aid formula. Um, there's actually a court case that came down this week um, related to the foundation aid formula, but it's basically um, designed to make up for the differences in local wealth and local need so that all this, all the school districts throughout the state have enough money to provide a sound basic education for students. The issue with the formula is that there are lots of mechanisms that have been built in um, for political reasons to drive money to higher wealth, lower need districts. Um, and while foundation aid still provides much more aid to the, the higher need districts, the poorer districts, um, it's still diverting a lot of money to those high wealth districts um, that have politically powerful representatives. Um, this year, there was an increase of $700 million in foundation aid um, overall. Um, we think that if they had uh, changed the formula and appropriately distributed that money, um, they could have fully funded uh, a sound basic education uh, for students throughout the state and actually saved about $130 million. So you're saying we've got the highest amount of per-pupil spending in the nation. There are calls that that is not enough, and there are calls for greater amount of spending. Um, but what you're saying is that actually within this pot of money for just slightly more, we can actually get to the level of sound basic education where some high-need, low-resource districts um, can get the funding they need without necessarily having the political pork, of you, if you will, of providing additional funds to these high wealth districts that can tax themselves, you know, without even noticing to make up the difference. And not only can they tax themselves, but they are taxing themselves. And they're mm -hmm. the districts that are spending the, you know, forty, fifty thousand $50,000 per student when the statewide average is, you know, in, in the range of $22,000. And, and many of those districts have provide wonderful programs. And if they want to fund them, then, you know, that's a local decision. They can do that. But the state shouldn't be kicking in foundation aid, which is unrestricted aid, and that they use, um, you know, to supplement those programs. So that's a lot of the budget passed in April. We're still dissecting that. We're still looking at the ramifications of that. There are also some um, some policy choices, some policy matters that CBC has been watching. Other watchdogs have been watching. We've certainly been paying attention at Gotham Gazette about some of these policy matters that are very much the city's interest, right? New York City 
the de Blasio administration, but also just others in the city who want to see things like design bill being passed to allow the city permission to use that. So uh, on design build, do you want to give us a, a little recap of sort of the, the deal there and then anything else that's sort of a policy matter that hasn't or has moved? Sure. Um, so design build, um, for, for folks who don't know, is basically the idea that instead of bidding out uh, the design of a project and then later on building bidding out the construction of the project, we end up with two separate entities. Um, you know, kind of one, one group is building the plans and the other group actually comes in and builds the, you know, the bridge or whatever it is. Um, and then you end up with all these change orders and, and the costs seem to go up and, and it's harder to, to assign um, responsibility because one person designed it, somebody else is building it. And, you know, they kind of can play off each other as to, you know, the reason why the changes need to take place. Um, with design build, it's all bid out at once. Someone's being paid to design and build a bridge. They, they do it all. Um, and then if there are issues that come up, it's very clear where the responsibility lies. Um, you have less change orders and uh, it can save a lot of money. We did an analysis showing that design build authorization just for bridges in New York City could save $2 billion over 10 years. Um, not only is that a savings, but then you can, you, you know, you can di divert some of that money to fixing more bridges. Um, and for some reason, in state law, the city doesn't have permission to use this type of contract. Correct. They're, they're only specialized entities that are allowed to have it. In this year's budget, eight specific projects for New York State were authorized. Um, the Thruway Authority um, has authorization, I believe. Um, but that's that's pretty much it in, in the state. And many of the state's um, agencies would like it as well, and they don't have the authority. Um, the governor actually proposed that all counties in New York State outside of New York City should get design-build authorization. Um, when asked why that was, their response was was basically that for some reason New York City created conflict. They're trying to avoid the conflict. They'd be happy to, to see the city get it. Um, eventually, none of the counties received it either. Um, it's something that I know the counties would like for the same reason, that, that they believe it could save a lot of money um, for taxpayers and, and allow them to do more projects or cut taxes. And this is something the governor has repeatedly sort of touted as the state having the ability to do it and explain how much time and money it saves the state on some of these major projects. But somehow this permission has led. Right. I mean, the, the governor early out the gate authorized this for his signature infrastructure project, which is happened Z, right? Soon to be the Mario that, Cuomo Bridge. Soon to be the Mario Cuomo Bridge. And, you know, I, I laugh a little bit when people say it's an innovative procurement. Well, you know, there's a long track record here of design build being very successful. It's been used in the UK since the 1990s. It is the prevailing practice now in the private sector for lots of projects. And we've got enough of a history and, and record here that show the results really do, you know, there's data to back up the results. The projects come in on time um, and, you know, can often be delivered more quickly and more uh, cost effectively. So and, you know, so for folks who are like, well, but New York is not like any other place. Well, we have now the experience from New York. We have these state projects that have been done. Um, and where design build has been used very effectively. So at a time when all eyes are on infrastructure, it seems to me that this should be a no-brainer uh, for how to make the city's dollars go further. The state's dollars as well. And, and you know, there, there are accusations that for some reason it would undermine transparency, but it's still a publicly bid project. It's still a publicly bid ideal with review by the comptroller, hopefully. And, um, and, those, uh, and I, I think those accusations are just unfounded. So was there anything other than design bill that you were especially paying attention to here in the post-budget legislative session, which <laughs> sort of wrapped up uh, earlier in June and has now um, been reimagined for a special session, but I don't think mm -hmm. 
there are too many issues it looks like are happening in the special session that you were worried about, but but give us a snapshot of other things besides design build. Is there anything else you were watching? So um, as you talked about to the comptroller, one of the things that we've been focused a lot on is economic development reform. Um, we were uh, strong advocates for the, the comptroller's bill um, and also for the creation of a database of deals. Um, this is the idea that, and six other states have one, where all economic development projects are listed on the state's website um, all in the same format where you can compare and contrast how the state's spending its economic development money. So you'd be able to compare how the film tax credit stacks up against Excelsior Jobs Program, how it stacks up against the Solar City Factory, and you can see how much the state is spending, what it's getting in return, and whether or not the state is really effectively using those dollars. Um, that's not, the, the bill was... Um, or I'm sorry, the provision was included in both the Senate and the Assembly's one-house budgets um, passed in mid-March. There were different versions. Um, we worked with staff from both houses. Um, there's a bill was introduced in, in both houses. Um, it was the same as. There were some changes. So technically, they're not they're not same as bills right now. But those differences are, um, are, are you know somewhat nuanced compared to the overall idea. And we were really hoping that that, that would pass. Uh, it, it didn't um, get adopted yet. But we're, we're obviously still hopeful like the comptroller. Um, and it's, it's actually something that ESDC could largely do themselves if they were so inclined. Um, some of this information is already posted in slightly different formats, which is one of the issues. Um, because you can't really compare one program to the next if they're counting a job differently. Um, you know, in some things, if somebody works for a day, it counts as a job. In, in other programs, they need to work for a full year for it to count as a job. Um, so we would love to see ESDC just do this. That would, that would be great. And so like procurement reform, this database of deals is something that the governor doesn't particularly want. Um, and, and as the controller was talking about, ha- haven't have moved a little bit. You know, there's mm-hmm. some support, but haven't haven't made it through yet. We, we haven't heard definitively from the governor's folks that they're, you know, in support or opposition to the database of deals. Um, so I don't, I certainly don't want to speak for them on, on that. Um, we, you know, there's a lot of transparency. I, 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 I apologize then. Yeah, no, oh, no, I, that's I, okay. I, I assume. I assume. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So, uh, I mean, if they were, you know, in support, we've been very public about it. You know, they, they could have just done it or, you know, come out and support, but, but they haven't, uh, haven't voiced um, opposition to it. Um, and the other, another thing that, that we've been following that we always follow are uh, benefit sweeteners um, in the uh, in the extraordinary session um, that was held last night and is continuing as we speak. Um, there is a, a provision um, that that is a, a sweetener. Um, so we tracked 132 different sweeteners over the course of the year. Uh, 26 of those passed, and we'll probably recommend vetoes on about 10 of them. Um, and uh, so this is 26 measures that pass through the legislature that would add to pension benefits for. Uh, municipal employees of some or, or state uh, government employees of some kind. Yeah, it's a mix. Some of it is um, disability benefits. Some is it. Some of it is a presumption that you know their work for whoever they're working for led to their led to an illness. Um, some of it is you know time off for uh, cancer screenings. It's it's a mix of anything that really provides an increased um, benefit to a state or local employee. Um, that's kind of outside of a collective bargaining agreement. Things that are, are part of a collective bargaining agreement where there's trade-offs, we, we, we don't really comment on generally, um, specific, or we don't comment on specifically as, as it relates to a sweetener. Um, we might comment on the, the contract overall, but um, these are kind of one-off things that the state is passing that aren't really part of the, that, that process. So CBC has been tracking these benefit enhancements for 12 years. And one thing you notice in doing that over time is that as soon as one group gets a benefit, there is pressure and an impetus for another group to claim the need for the same benefit. And it truly is a slippery slope. Um, 
And, you know, it's part of how the benefits became so extravagant that there was a need for reform in 2010, in 2011, rather, to, to bring them back a little bit for new employees. So I think in the wake of pension reform, certainly the governor, as one of his signature fis- fiscal achievements, has been very cautious about approving any of these, and rightfully so, because, again, you don't want to be on that slippery slope, especially um, when the cost of pensions just continue to rise. And the key there is that these are liabilities for the state to have to pay. Now, as you indicated, there are many valid arguments sometimes for altering pension uh, benefits because um, you know certain people who've been injured in the line of duty or or, mm-hmm. or sick at, from work um, are due certain benefits as a result. You said about 26 have passed of, of the 100 or so proposed, and you're uh, urging veto by the governor of? Um, about 10. We're still kind of going through and sorting through and talking to um, you know some of the uh, the impacted localities to make sure that you know their stance on it and whether there's some you know some other agreement you know outside that we weren't aware of. Um, but yeah, it'll probably be around 10. Last year, I think we recommended vetoes on about the same. It was around 10, and half of them were ultimately vetoed. Mm-hmm. So this is something we'll be watching to see, A, what your recommendations are as they go to the governor, and the governor has to decide what to do there. So just to wrap up a little bit here, one of the things that you hit on that occurred to me with this database of deals and even procurement reform to extend is actually something that we talked about on the last uh, episode of this podcast, which is sort of performance measures and looking to government to do a little bit more to show how, what they're doing, how they're doing, and you know, in some cases, like we talked about last week, how how citizens and constituents are feeling about how government's doing. But in this case, we're talking about just the government reporting more and being more transparent. So you know, that's going to be a theme as we go forward here, Dave. Just to sort of take us home here, what's what's next for you other than the pension sweeteners? Are you analyzing the results of the special session? Are you, you know, what 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 is your next step? Look like? yeah, well, we're still monitoring, see what's happening. Um, you know, obviously it seems to be a pretty fluid situation. I haven't checked Twitter in the last half hour. Um, but uh, so so that's something that we'll keep an eye on. Um, another thing is we're going to track. You know, the the state's revenues. We're very concerned about that. Um, you know, the state decreased their PIT forecast by $1.3 billion um, between January and May, um, which is a cause for concern, obviously. Um, but Something last the year, controller mentioned, yeah. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and last year they were almost $2 billion short from what they said at the enacted budget to what the final numbers were. Um, and that's, that's, that's a considerable concern. And, and the, there's, you know, thought that perhaps that's, you know, money that's being shifted around with, with changes at the federal level. People are waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, but that's a lot of money to shift around. And, and it seems like it might be more than, than simple shifting. So that's something we're concerned about and making sure that the state is pushing the state to make the right choices as it relates to settlement funds and what to do with those and building reserves and not, uh, you know, spending it on these one-off economic development programs where we don't know what the, uh, the efficacy is. Great. Thank you. So we'll be following that at Gotham Gazette as well and watching not only what the state is doing and the governor is doing on some of these measures, but obviously what CBC is saying about them. Uh, so for this uh, third edition of What's the Data Point, uh, this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thank you, Dave, for joining us. Thank you to Controller Tom DiNapoli for joining us. This is Maria Doulis from the CBC. Thanks for listening. Bye.